0: Hello, and welcome to El Mahabba Center's podcast. My name is Irini Youssef, and today we will be looking at radical approaches to public education. In our last podcast episode, we talked about liberal and radical approaches to public education. And we said that liberals see public education as good, democratic, as a human right, and that if there are any problems with public education, they're because of certain policies. So the solution then is to go to our Congress and our Board of Education and convince them to change those certain policies. Radicals, on the other hand, don't see public education this way. Radicals see public education as indoctrination by default. Indoctrination, remember, just means never teaching how to challenge authority. So radicals um, will of course point out how the first thing we do when we get into our class is pledge allegiance to the flag, which is a national symbol. And on top of that, we are not really taught an in-depth history of other societies. So we're not really taught what alternatives we have, and we're not taught what our legal rights are concerning police and politicians and the military, and in that way we're not really encouraged or taught how to challenge police officers and politicians and members in the military. And since, you know, we're asked to pledge allegiance to the flag, and we're not taught what alternatives are, and we're not taught what our rights are, and we're not taught how to challenge authority, we are essentially being indoctrinated. And according to the radical, we are specifically being indoctrinated so that we become obedient workers and obedient soldiers. So after going through the public education system and getting our high school diploma, at this point in our lives we are so used to having you know, what, what time our meals happen, what we're supposed to wear, what we're supposed to essentially be, and what we're supposed to think really drilled into us that we're not going to rebel against our boss and we're not going to rebel against our commanding officers. So to the radical, this indoctrination is dangerous because it is ultimately serving the government. It is serving the government's need for a strong labor force and it's serving the government's need for a strong military. It in no way centers the student then. It's not centering creativity. It's not centering a sense of independence. It's centering the government's needs at all times. So the radical solution then to this issue of public education is getting our own education so studying for ourselves how other societies are organized what options we have studying for ourselves what our rights are how we can challenge police officers the military and politicians and not just you know sitting isolated in libraries studying this right so actually going to our neighborhoods and our communities and learning together what these options are and how we can challenge authority together this is the radical solution then to the public education system. So radicals often get accused of being really abstract or really theoretical. So even, you know, if people agree with the underlying principle of what radicals believe, they'll still kind of shake their head a little bit you know and say well you know that's all well and good but unfortunately we have to follow the liberal approach you know we have to just continue going to our Congress and our Board of Education and hoping for the best Um, so I wanted to use this podcast episode to say that there are actually radical approaches to public education happening now in practice Uh, and one place in particular I want us to look at is Chiapas Mexico In Chiapas, Mexico, there are different indigenous groups who collectively call themselves the Zapatistas. And the Zapatistas, despite the best efforts of the Mexican government, have managed to carve out for themselves a kind of political autonomy. So they have their own schools, their own health clinics, and their own justice system. So to understand how they achieved such a level of political autonomy, and what their philosophy is, and how their approach to education is so different from what we're used to, we first have to understand what the situation was in Chiapas Mexico in 1970. So In 1970, there was a lot of land reform in Mexico that directly impacted indigenous farmers. And in Chiapas, Mexico in particular, a lot of indigenous farmers were actually displaced off their land. And that kind of oppression was so great that indigenous people came together to form what they called the Indigenous Congress. And the Indigenous Congress, uh, I believe in 1974, then declared independence from the Mexican government. So, as you can imagine, the Mexican government did not, you know, take this very well and deployed several troops to Chiapas, Mexico to suppress the congress and several indigenous leaders were in fact killed and tortured during this time. So, while this physical violence is escalating, there's also a lot of structural violence happening. So, remember I said there was a lot of land reform that displaced farmers. Well, on top of the land reform, there was also the fact that the price of coffee was falling. So Chiapas Mexico is one of the largest exporters of coffee in the world, but as the price of coffee fell, that meant that they weren't getting a lot of money in return for all of their work. So, you know, this is great for Seattle, great for American college students, not so great for the people living in Chiapas Mexico who depend on the price of coffee being steady. So as the price of coffee was falling, they were receiving even less money And on top of the price of coffee falling, uh, the value of the peso was falling. So not only were they getting less money, the value of the money they were getting was less valuable. So on top of the physical violence I mentioned with the military, now we have the structural violence of the pesos value being lost and the value of the coffee being lost as well. So... In, you know, this was a huge turning point for Chiapas, Mexico, and in the 1980s then, the Zapatistas officially formed. So they started out with about a thousand members, and throughout the 80s, they were formulating, uh, what they would do if they had independence from the Mexican government. So if they themselves actually owned the land, what would they do with it? And in this decade, they were creating their theory, they were creating their philosophy, and it finally got put to the test in 1994 when the Mexican government signed the North American Free Trade Agreement. So for those who don't know, the North American Free Trade Agreement essentially did everything i just described that happened in the 1970s and 80s but like 10 times worse so (laughs) it like further opened up trade between canada the u.s and mexico to make sure exports to the u.s and canada would be really um, low so like coffee you know the price of coffee would be low the price of corn would be really low for you know americans and canadians all well and good but like i said this would directly impact then the workers who picked the coffee beans and the workers who made the corn or grew the corn rather. So the Zapatistas immediately recognized what the North American Free Trade Agreement was going to do and they couldn't, you know, sit still any longer. So in 1994, the Zapatistas occupied six major cities in Mexico and they demanded that the Mexican government allow indigenous people in Chiapas to govern themselves with full political, economic, and cultural autonomy. In essence, they were asking that the ownership of the land and the ownership of the water in Chiapas be returned to the indigenous people. So remember how I said there was so much misery and so much suffering happening in Chiapas because the value of the peso fell and the price of coffee fell? So all of this actually wouldn't have been such a big deal. All of this wouldn't have caused so much poverty and so much misery if the indigenous people had owned the land and owned the water. But at this time, the actual owners of that land in Chiapas were investors. So people who didn't even live in the community or anywhere near it were the ones controlling that land and exploiting it for its resources. And they were the ones benefiting whenever the price of coffee fell, while the workers, the people actually living in Chiapas, were the ones suffering. So when the Zapatistas were doing their marches and doing their protests in these major cities and asking for political, economic, and cultural autonomy, they were making a serious demand. So they were asking for the ownership of the land and the water. And as you can imagine, as their protests increased and their popularity with the Mexican people increased, the Mexican government was getting a little bit scared. And in fact, an executive from Chase Manhattan Bank, which had investments in the land in Chiapas, sent a memo to the Mexican president telling him that he needed to eliminate the Zapatista threat immediately. So, in response to this memo, the Mexican president deployed 60,000 troops to occupy Chiapas and surround the Zapatistas essentially. And after this happened, the Zapatistas agreed to have a series of discussions with the Mexican president. And it took two years, but by 1996, the Mexican president and the Zapatistas reached an agreement known as the San Andreas Accords. So the San Andreas Accords promised a program of land reform and indigenous autonomy. However, it didn't guarantee that the military troops would withdraw. And that's essentially where we are today so all of this happened about 25 years ago but to this day there are still military troops occupying and surrounding chiapas and the zapatistas do have a kind of autonomy but we have to keep in mind that their autonomy is constantly being surveyed by the mexican government which continues to surround chiapas So now that we looked at the history of the Zapatistas, let's take a moment to look at the philosophy of the Zapatistas in order to better understand their radical approach to education. So a really big in Zapatista philosophy is the point of autonomy, of self-governance, and for them, autonomy is achieved when communities have control of resources. So when communities are producing their own food and producing their own clothing and anything else they consume, so and for them, this is the moral way to live, this is the best, most dignified way to live, because the alternative that we have is to rely on international corporate networks and international banking systems. And for them, relying on corporations and relying on banks lacks a lot of dignity. So. Remember how I said, you know, Americans, Canadians, and other people in the first world get to enjoy cheap commodities, so they get to enjoy cheap coffee, cheap sugar, cheap clothing, and all that? However, these cheap commodities, because of the corporations and because of the banks, are brought to us and have the prices so low because of exploitation. And for the Zapatistas, there's no way to really avoid that exploitation if you're relying on international corporations and international banking systems so for them the greatest concern is asking who is picking those coffee beans who is working on those sugarcane plantations who is making that clothing so oftentimes in the first world, we don't know who's making the things that we consume. We don't know who's making our food. We don't know who's making our clothing. And for all we know, they're oftentimes on the opposite side of the world, in absolute poverty in in really poor working conditions. So for Zapatistas, in order to restore dignity to communities, Communities need to be autonomous. They need to be making their own food and making their own clothing and anything else that they consume. And you may have noticed I kept using the word dignity. So if you read uh, what Zapatistas have written about their philosophy, they oftentimes use the word dignity. It comes up a lot. So in another way it comes up in their philosophy is the idea that returning to nature and being at one with nature, learning its seasons and learning how uh, to be able to make your own food and make your own clothing creates a kind of dignity within you. So now you really have a true sense of independence. You understand your place on earth and you have a really deep respect for the resources on earth since you're interacting with it every day. And I think this is a really interesting point because when we think of students in you know, America, we oftentimes read that students are more anxious than ever, they're more depressed than ever, they lack a lot of confidence. And it makes sense that students would feel this way, that they would lack a kind of dignity because they aren't you know, in nature all the time, they're not interacting with their resources, they're not confident in what their place is in the world. Instead, our students are in buildings, you know, concrete buildings for eight hours a day, and then they go home to do homework, you know, essentially staying in school for the full 24-hour period. And never learning how to be independent. Now that we have looked at the history of the Zapatistas and the philosophy of the Zapatistas, let's now look at their radical approach to public education. So the Zapatistas, um, something that really stood out to me in my research for this podcast is their emphasis on preserving languages. So remember in last week's episode when we talked about the Prussian education system, we said a really large feature was their insistence that all students speak German. So they wanted to create a national identity and they forced all students who attended their schools to speak only German. Well, a similar thing was happening in Mexican schools and I assume still happens to this day. So all students who attend public education in Mexico have to speak in Spanish. And if any student would speak in an indigenous language, they could face some kind of punishment. And we know that the suppression of a language is not just the suppression of grammar or punctuation, it is also the suppression of a whole history, of a whole way of looking at the world, of a whole culture. So when these Mexican schools were enforcing Spanish-only policies. They weren't just you know, belittling these students and making them feel small and excluding them. They were also erasing those students' histories, those students' cultures, and those students' way of looking at the world. So when the Zapatistas formed and when they finally got control of Chiapas and when they finally had a chance to form their schools, they put a huge emphasis on language learning. So. Many students in Chiapas going through these Zapatista schools are in fact polylingual now. So many of them know more than one, two, three, or even four indigenous languages. And the reason for that is whenever students, whenever families come through the schools and they might have a different indigenous language than everyone else does, they're not told, you know, to sit quiet they're not told to assimilate. They're actually told to educate the rest of the class, to educate the rest of the group. So. Just from that dynamic, we see a lot of humility on the teachers' part, right? That we don't oftentimes see in state schools. So, you know, in state-run schools, we see a dynamic where the teacher is the one with all the discipline, uh, the teacher is the one with all the knowledge, and the teacher is the one with all the control. But in the zapatista dynamic, everyone is considered someone worthy of dignity, someone worthy of respect, and like we said, autonomy, so self-governance. So when students uh, come through the Zapatista schools and they might have another language, they are not, you know, told to shut up. They're instead told to speak and to help others learn how to communicate with them. And this like I said, gives dignity to the student It reminds them of their own value, but it also enriches the lives of the other students. So many of them, like I said, are polylingual. And this means, you know, that not just that they know a lot of, uh, different forms of grammar, different forms of punctuation. This means they have a really high emotional intelligence. They can see the world through different eyes and through different ways of understanding. They have access to different histories, to different cultures and it can communicate with all sorts of people. So imagine this classroom for a minute that has such an emphasis on language and such an emphasis on nurturing students in this way. And imagine how comforted and supported and welcomed these students feel. And think too, are these students, you know, who feel so dignified and respected, are they likely to then lash out against other students and to lash out against the teacher? and remember last in our last episode we talked about school discipline issues in the us and the deterioration and breakdown of student-teacher relationships and really the source of that deterioration and the reason why so many students are so unhappy in schools and they lash out so often in schools is because teachers are withholding respect from their students They're not treating students like human beings, who have full autonomy, who understand themselves, who understand their history. And by withholding that respect, they break down student confidence, they break down student dignity. And of course, we then have the issues we see now with suspension and expulsion so what stood out to me with the zapatista schools is this really big emphasis on languages and what that dynamic implies about respect and dignity so by respecting each student's language and the attached history and the attached culture there is so much humility on the part of the teacher and so much respect given to the student and i think that combination of humility and respect really fuses a strong bond between teacher and student and continuing on that track, I've been using the word teacher, but that's not actually how the Zapatistas refer to their educators. So instead of saying teacher, uh, the word translated into English is education promoter, and I think that's a really interesting word. So what they mean by that is students are ultimately responsible for their education, are ultimately responsible for investigating what they want to understand about the world, for investigating for themselves what they want to learn. So, what they have then to help them are education promoters. So, essentially teachers, but by changing that word a little bit and not saying teacher, but saying education promoter, we understand that these education promoters, they don't have total knowledge of the world, right? They don't have full authority, they don't know everything. They are simply there to promote education and to help encourage and nurture it in students and i think once again just by that simple word choice by changing it from teacher to education promoter there's once again that sense of humility on the education promoter's part so they're not trying to claim you know like in public schools that they have the authority they have the control they have the knowledge They're saying, you know, this is what we know. We can help point to, you know, whatever path you wanna go down, but that's ultimately your decision. Education promoters, moreover, are not paid for what they do. So, of course, they have all of their needs met by the families of their students. So all of their clothing, all of their food and lodging needs are provided by the families, but they aren't paid and students are not charged. And the reason for this is Zapatistas don't see knowledge as a... commodity that you can buy and sell. They see knowledge as free for everyone, and if you have knowledge, it is your duty then to pass it on to younger generations. And this is a very different model than what we have in the U.S. So in the U.S., uh, rich students uh, have more access to knowledge simply because they can buy more access to knowledge. So they can buy expensive tutors, they can buy expensive books, they can buy expensive laptops. And because they are able to purchase knowledge this way, they have better access to knowledge. So knowledge then becomes a commodity that you can buy and sell. Knowledge is not seen as a service in the US. and because of this too, on the flip side, poor students then have fewer means to acquire knowledge and they have less access to knowledge, which further takes away their respect and their dignity and their confidence. So the final thing I'll say about the Zapatista schools is how they look. <laughs> so Zapatista schools, they do have that classic you know, classroom with the chalkboard and the rows of desks but they also have most of their lessons outside so while students are harvesting and planting and while they're outside in nature they are receiving oral lessons about their history and this kind of classroom that happens outside while the students are getting a lot of visual and kinetic stimulation I think is really wonderful so You know, in state schools, the only kind of stimulation students receive is auditory stimulation. But we know most students can't learn just through auditory stimulation. And even students who, you know, learn fine just through auditory stimulation, they still benefit when they have visual stimulation, when they have kinetic stimulation. And by kinetic stimulation, I just mean having their bodies move around or their hands be working on something while someone is giving them a lesson. So when I was in school, I had one teacher who got really upset with me whenever I would doodle on the side of my notebook. And I didn't have the words back then, but I realized now I was doing that not out of disrespect for her or not because I wasn't paying attention, but because fidgeting with my hand that way and doodling on the side of my notebook actually did help me concentrate on what she was saying. But when, you know... I was disciplined (laughs) and I was told not to do that anymore it actually became much harder to register and remember things that you would say so you know by being out in nature and by having the students get a lot of visual stimulation and a lot of kinetic stimulation while they're receiving the lesson orally a lot of their memory then is retained and I think too a lot of their dignity is kept too so students often like you know in my example (laughs) of being disciplined for doodling i think when students don't get their kinetic stimulation or their visual stimulation or whatever they need they will find it somehow so they'll like get out of their desks or there be a distraction to other students and of course then they are punished so all of these disciplinary issues however i think would fall away if students got all of the stimulation that they needed. So I imagine that these students who are you know, out in nature, out harvesting and planting while they're getting their oral histories um, narrated to them are dignified, are respected by their education promoters then. They're not being told to sit down and to just listen and to just concentrate. And they're not being punished for naturally wanting more visual stimulation and more kinetic stimulation. I think it's really wonderful too that the students are in nature, you know, during these lessons. So, like we said earlier, by being in nature, the students cultivate a respect for the resources on earth, and they also understand how important it is to be independent and to make your own food and to make your own clothing. And on top of all of that, the students also gain a kind of confidence. So imagine, you know, they are learning how to take care of themselves they're learning how to feed themselves and they're learning how to be at one with nature so that kind of lesson is really invaluable and it gives them a kind of confidence to take care of themselves and to take care of their families and to take care of their communities and once again this is very different from state-run schools so state-run schools of course don't teach students how to take care of themselves or their communities, right? So, in state-run schools, students, um, you know, are taught basic arithmetic and reading and writing, but they're not taught what resources there are on Earth, how to take care of those resources, and how to essentially be independent from international banking systems and international corporation networks so in summary the zapatista philosophy and the zapatista schools are really different from state-run schools in that zapatistas always consider the dignity and the confidence of the student in everything that they do and we see this through how they put an emphasis on language and history so no student is ever asked to assimilate to any dominant language or any dominant history and if a student and the student's family know a language that most don't, they are not told to stay silent, but instead told to help educate the rest of the class and the education promoters so that they can better communicate with them. This kind of humility on the part of the education promoters is further seen in how education promoters refer to themselves. So they never refer to themselves as teacher or as someone with ultimate knowledge and ultimate authority. Instead, by referring to themselves as education promoters, they are drawing attention to how their role in the students' lives is just to promote education, just to encourage them to seek it out for themselves. And I think that's really powerful in reminding students that they too have respect and they too have dignity. Moreover, we said education promoters, um, they do have all of their needs met, so the families provide them with food and clothing, but they are not paid. And the reason for that is because education promoters, um, you know, are seen as people with knowledge and it's seen as a duty to pass on that knowledge to younger generations. Knowledge is not seen as a commodity that can be bought and sold. Once again, very different (laughs) from state-run schools in the system we have here in the U.S. where college could cost something like $50,000 a year in tuition. And finally, we said that most Zapatista lessons uh, do happen outside in nature while the students are harvesting and planting. And having lessons outside in nature, we said, is really beneficial to students because it gives them that visual and kinetic stimulation that they need to really remember and retain lessons. And it also gives them a kind of dignity and a kind of confidence because it teaches them how to take care of themselves and what their place is in the world and how to take care of earth and its resources. A lesson I think many American students would benefit in taking. So with that, that is the conclusion <laughs> of this podcast episode. So the radical approach to education that we see in Chiapas, Mexico is not theoretical or abstract. It is in practice right now and it teaches us that there are ways to organize society that centers student dignity at all times. However, it also reminds us that we can never expect the government to center student dignity in its policies because the government will always center itself in whatever policy it releases. So on that happy note, (laughs) uh, thank you all so much for listening and please join us next week when Ronnie will talk about labor. My name is Irini Youssef and this is El Mahaba Center.